Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled Prime. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. In 1837, famed Danish author Hans Christian Andersen uh, published a fairy tale called The Emperor's New Clothes. The story is about an emperor who loved wearing fine clothing so much that he spent all his people's money uh, on them with the goal of being the best dressed man in the land. One day, two hustlers showed up in the city and went to the emperor's palace, claiming to be the best fashion designers in the entire kingdom. As they made their sales pitch to the emperor, they professed to, be, to have a fabric that nobody else had, and it was so special, so beautiful, and so magical that it would appear invisible to anyone who was stupid or incompetent. Captivated by this amazing new product, the emperor pays the two schemers a ridiculous sum of money to create a new wardrobe for him with this trend-setting fabric. The hustlers then pretended to start making the clothes using empty looms and needles without thread. When the emperor sent his uh, trusted advisors to go check on these uh, two hustlers, they saw nothing, but the advisors, when they went back to report to the emperor, they did not want to admit that they saw nothing for fear they too would be seen as stupid or incompetent. So each advisor lied to the emperor and told him how splendid the clothes looked. On the day the new clothes were delivered, a great parade was scheduled so the entire kingdom could see the emperor's new attire. As the emperor is dressed in his invisible outfits, he too sees nothing, but did not want to admit it for fear of being called stupid or incompetent. When preparations were completed, the emperor marched in procession through the city before his entire kingdom. Every citizen saw their leader without clothes, but feared being called stupid or incompetent, which would cost them their jobs. So they all offered thunderous applause to the beaming emperor. And as the people offer their empty praises for the new clothes, a small boy shouts out, but the emperor has no clothes. When a person gives their life to Jesus Christ, he expects the new believer to start wearing new clothes that are visible, not invisible, And the Apostle Paul wants to talk about that today. He wants to talk about our wardrobe. We're going to continue our series in the book of Colossians called Prime. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Colossians chapter 3. And take out the sermon notes that are in the worship folder you received when you came in. Colossians chapter 3. You might remember that the key theme verse for this series is uh, Colossians 1.18 where Paul says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in everything he might be preeminent. 
That word preeminent is a big word, but it's also loaded. It's pregnant with meaning. It's the English rendering of a Greek word that means to hold first place. Jesus first in all things is the overarching theme of the book of Colossians, which is what inspired the title for this series. Prime is an adjective in our English language that means first in authority, importance, rank, or significance. And in the first 17 verses of chapter 3 that we're going to look at today, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us that when Jesus has first place in our lives, in our hearts, the natural byproduct is a life that is changing. Thus, our big idea for today is this, what you believe determines what you wear. What you believe determines what you wear. The greatest proof that someone has sincerely trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation is a changing life. This means that unlike the emperor in the emperor's new clothes, Christ followers are supposed to be changing from the inside out so much that it's visible. It's as visible as the clothes that they wear. Many commentators break down the book of Colossians into two general sections. Uh, Chapters 1 and 2, which we spent the first few weeks in, are more theological in nature, and you've done well in persevering with me through a lot of uh, thick theological mud, um, for lack of a better phrase. But in chapters 3 and 4, the second half of the book, the apostle gets more practical. In essence, what he's doing is saying, because of all the things I said theologically about the Lord and about us in chapters 1 and 2, here's how that all applies in chapters 3 and 4. And so Paul is, in essence, going to tell us here in chapter 3, verses 1 to 17, that what we believe should shape the way we behave. And he does this by addressing at least, or answering at least two questions. Uh, The first being, why do we need to change if we've trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior? And the second question is, well, how do we do it then? How do we do it? And so with that, if you would look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Here's the first point that he's making, and that is that Christ's followers have been given a purpose for change. It's it's not purposeless change, but it's purposeful. There's a reason. Paul says in verse 1, seek the things that are above. Literally, keep on seeking or striving. It means don't strive for the 30-yard line to use a football metaphor or analogy. Instead, strive for the end zone. Keep striving all the way to the end where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand of God. 
Paul says in verse 1. He wrote something very similar to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, where he says, Christ seated us with him in the heavenly places. You know, what's interesting, I was thinking about where people sit in various positions this week, and uh, where you sit should shape, and it often does shape, the way you think. Uh, For example, a king who sits on a throne, or uh, the president who sits in his oval office, or a teacher who sits at the front of the classroom, all of them have a unique perspective and special privileges that come with the seat that they hold. Well, in a similar fashion, Paul is saying, as Christ followers, we've been given a special position with a unique perspective and special privileges. Well, what are those special privileges? Here's letter A on your outline. Well, we have a better life coming. There's a better life and a longer life that awaits those who have trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior. This is why Paul says, set your minds on things that are above. In verse 2. In verse 1 he said, seek the things that are above. Now he says, set your minds on the things that are above. Whereas that command in verse 1 was to seek and to strive... In the original text, in verse 2, now what he's saying is keep thinking or concentrating on the things that are above. The Lord does not want us focusing completely on things that are here on earth. Why? Because Jesus Christ, if he's your Lord and Savior, you'll be with him in eternity longer than you'll be here. There's a famous quote that's been around for decades, and I've heard it many times, and I I honestly, I don't know who said it. I tried to research it this week on Google, and and, uh, still couldn't find who said it, but several other people have quoted it in their books and blogs and sermons. But it goes like this, um, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Now, I think I understand what the original author of that quote is saying, or what they intended, and it even sounds cool to say it. However, I have to admit, I've never met anybody like that. I've never met a believer that was so heavenly-minded they were no earthly good. In fact, it's been my experience in 20th and 21st century evangelicalism that many professing believers are so earthly-minded they're no heavenly good. And what I mean by that is that they're so attached to the things of this world that they live like they have to get their best life now when God's word says, don't do that because you've got a better life coming later. So they live kind of like, all I have is 75 years, 80 years if the Lord is good, and that's it. They don't live with an eternal perspective. Right at the text with me, Paul says in verses 3 and 4, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Here's letter B, another reason why Paul says that we have a purpose for change is that we have a risen Redeemer returning. Christ is going to return. 
So we should set our minds on things that are above. This is, this is a, a reference to uh, the rapture, the return of Christ, but it's also a reference to the eternal rewards that the Lord will give out when he returns. He'll give out eternal rewards to believers that have been faithful to him. Therefore, since we don't know exactly when he's returning, and he'll be handing out rewards when he does, we should make it our goal to please him in all that we do. Sort of like being ready for a pop quiz in school. You don't know when the teacher's going to give it, so you've got to stay current on the material. We have a risen Redeemer returning. So, so how do we walk in the word? How do we walk in the truth by applying this? Here's an application that comes to mind. Keep your feet on earth, but your head in heaven. Keep your feet on earth, but your head in heaven. It means we should always maintain an eternal perspective. It means that when we, when we watch the news and we, we hear about another mass shooting or, or maybe an election that didn't go the way we hoped, we, we shouldn't long for the way things used to be in the good old days. Instead, we should long for the way things will be when Christ returns. It means that if the Lord blesses us with a new job or a promotion, we don't just spend more on ourselves like the world would. Instead, we just lay up more treasure in heaven, as Jesus said to do. That's, that's having an eternal perspective. It means that if we're suffering physically or being persecuted for our faith, here on earth, we don't lose hope or conclude that our life on earth has been wasted. Instead, we keep our hope and we trust that the Lord doesn't waste anything because 2 Corinthians 4.17 says this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So short time here, long time forever in eternity. Or to quote James, our life here on earth is but a mist, a vapor, here for a moment, and gone. So what you believe determines what you wear and how you think. Next, number two on your outline, the second of three major points that Paul makes in this passage is that Christ followers have been given a process for change. We have a purpose for change, and then he says there's a process for change. Because the gospel truths in verses 1 through 4 are true, Paul then rattles off what some theologians call a vice and virtue list. In other words, he's saying, because the old you has died with Christ and your new identity is secure in him, or hidden, to use Paul's turn of phrase in verse 3, and, and he's coming back to take you home with him. Get ready for his return by putting to death what is earthly in you. That's what he says, actually, in verse 5. Follow along with me as I read verses 5 through 9. So Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, 
On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So here's letter A. What's the process for change? Well, Paul says the first step is to put off old thinking and behavior. To put off old thinking and behavior. He's using the metaphors of death and changing clothes to illustrate how the believer can change and become more Christ-like. Now, I don't have time to explain every one of these vices, so I'll just clarify some of them that are not as obvious. Uh, In verse 5 in the ESV, he says impurity. It it refers to lustful thoughts or impure motives. This would include doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. Our motives for doing something matter just as much to the Lord as the action does. Uh, He mentions passion. Uh, It's another word that describes sexual sin or sexual desire outside the covenant of marriage. Then uh, covetousness in verse 5. Sometimes it's translated, maybe in your Bible translation, as greed. It refers to the sinful, selfish desire of always wanting more. It can mean both more things or just more pleasure. The person that struggles with covetousness is never content with what God has given them and envies what other people have. Next, in verse 6, Paul drops in another reason why we need to be motivated to put off, take off the old clothes from the old you. He says it's, it's, it's on account of these that the wrath of God is coming. Uh, you know, in other words, these are examples of sin, but not limited to. These are not the only sins, but these are some of the sins that Christ died for and, and, and for which God will judge the world. So don't let them control your life, is what Paul's saying. Don't keep doing the things that Jesus died to set you free from, and, and don't keep doing the things that God's going to punish the unbelieving world for. Next, he says, anger. I know that one seems obvious, but I want to clarify something. It generally describes unrighteous anger, such as when we don't get our way, our idols are threatened, or our pride is wounded. Uh, Elsewhere in the New Testament, righteous anger is mentioned as acceptable for believers. Jesus modeled righteous anger in the Gospels. Mark chapter 3, for example, Um, He was angry at the Pharisees. Basically, righteous anger is is when we get upset that sin has taken place or God's word has been violated in some way. But it's always under control. And Jesus modeled that. He got angry at times, but he was always under control. Next, wrath. Wrath. The Greek word used here describes the flaming, boiling rage that someone with unrighteous anger has. It's one of the reasons it's sinful is because the person that struggles with this sin is trying to be like God. They are are trying to pronounce judgment and to dole out vengeance on anyone who stands in their way. Then malice. In verse 8, malice means to have ill will. 
or the intent to hurt or to make evil plans against someone. So, so what Paul is saying here, again, just to be clear, is like an old bag of clothes that you would take to goodwill, the apostle is saying, get rid of these habitual sins. Get rid of them. Take them off. Burn them. Notice he doesn't say put them in the attic until the weather changes or, or store them in the garage until you feel like reminiscing about the old days. No, he says, have nothing more to do with them. Kill them. Take them off. Now, is Paul demanding that we strive for some impossible spiritual perfection? No. Instead, he's calling us to make spiritual progress. Progress, not perfection. You see, the committed Christ follower who practices putting to death their sins should over time see a declining desire for them and a decreasing frequency in their occurrence. So it's not that for example, if you struggle with anger and you decide, I'm going to really try and tackle anger, I'm going to try and just with the Lord's help, I'm going to stop getting unrighteously anger, angry all the time. It's not like you'll never get angry ever again because you still have a sin nature that indwells you. Instead, you should get angry less often as you work out your salvation with the Lord. More on that later. So because we have Christ, what Paul is saying is he's calling us to be something greater than we were before. We knew the Lord. You know, honestly, I've got to be transparent with you. I fear some of you may feel overwhelmed by this passage and feel defeated by verses 5 through 8. And I just want to encourage you to see God's heart behind these verses. When God says through his word, don't sin, what he's really saying is don't hurt yourself and don't hurt others because sin is not good for us. And that's a reflection of his goodness to us. Sin is what makes a mess of our lives and created the need for Jesus to die on the cross in the first place. So, the process for change starts with putting off old thinking and behavior because what you believe determines what you wear. Next, let's look at verses 10 through 15 as he transitions to the virtue list, Paul says, and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which 
Indeed, you were called in one body, and be thankful. So here's the second step in the process of change. Letter B is to put on new thinking and behavior. To put on new thinking behavior. Notice the repetition of this imperative, put on, is mentioned in verses 10, 12, and 14. So, so he's saying, since you've taken off the old clothes, pick up some new clothes now, the clothes of being Christ-like, and put those on. When someone loses a bunch of weight because they've decided to say, get their life together and eat more healthy and exercise, uh, one of the first things they have to do is to get a new wardrobe. Why? Because the old clothes don't fit anymore. In a similar fashion, the apostle is saying that when a person decides to get their life together spiritually, by walking with Jesus Christ, they need a new wardrobe because they've lost the weight of their sin. Thus, their old thought patterns and habits no longer fit them. Again, I don't have time to explain every one of these virtues, so I'll just hit on a couple that are not as obvious. He says in verse 12, humility, it comes from the Greek word that means to have a deep sense of one's littleness or lowliness of mind. I like to define it as the sober awareness of our own sinfulness in light of God's holiness. Next he says meekness, sometimes translated gentleness, depending on the Bible translation. It's, it's power under control. The, the person who has put on meekness uh, does not have to lose their temper because they have learned self-control with the Lord's help. Next, in verse 13, he says, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Some translations render this just as, meaning in a similar fashion. Well, how does the Lord forgive? Does he just, does he just forgive us when we're born sinners? No. The Lord shows us our sin, waits for us to repent, and then restores our relationship with him. And we should do the same with others. Jesus lays out the process for restoring a broken relationship in Matthew 18, 15 to 17. He explains the prerequisite for repentance before forgiveness in Luke 17, verses three and four. If you'd like to learn more about biblical peacemaking and what the Bible says about forgiveness, I laid out that process for reconciling a relationship uh, in a message called Fighting So You Both Win, part one, it's in the extreme home makeover marriage series uh, that I preached a couple of years ago. It's still on our website. I also developed some of the concepts further earlier this year in a message I preached called Walking in Love, part two, from the Authentic Walk series in John's letters. So how do we apply what Paul is saying with these virtues and vices? Well, the application's simple. Replace your sinful behaviors with sanctified ones. See, what would, what would happen if we just focused on putting off sinful behaviors? Like, like we would be so worried, at least I know I would, I guess I, I can't speak for you, I'd be so worried about not doing the sin that I would feel defeated when I did. Like, I would be, I'd be going, don't get angry, don't get angry, don't get angry. Oh, I got angry again, you know? 
or, or if you struggle with obscene talk, don't cuss, don't cuss, don't cuss. Oh, I cussed again. Now I want to cuss because I cussed, you know. So, so Paul, he knows this about us because he's saying don't just focus on avoiding the negative sinful practice. Instead, replace it with the positive sanctified behavior. So, for example, if you struggle with coveting, like Paul says in verse 5, then replace it with thankfulness in verse 15. Focus on building thankfulness and practicing that, and you'll see your coveting will die down and happen less and less. If you struggle with selfishness, then put off selfishness by putting on serving others. Paul gives us some more tips on how to do this, what this looks like in verses 16 and 17. Uh, look at the text. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the same, excuse me, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So here's how we go about changing. Number three on your outlines is Christ followers have been given the power to change. So we're going to get even more specific now. We know the purpose. He's given us the process. Put off, put on. But he knows the power to change does not reside within our own human strength. It can only come from the indwelling Holy Spirit and the Lord's enabling grace. So the apostle closes the passage by mentioning two ways to access the supernatural power needed to change. So where's the power come from? Letter A under number three is dwelling in the word. Dwelling in the word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. The word dwell in the original text is an interesting one. It, it, it means to make one's home in or to be at home. I, I love the Amplified Bible's rendering of this verse. Um, they, they translated it this way. Let the word of Christ have its home within you, dwelling in your heart and mind, permeating every aspect of your being. He's referring to a heart for Christ that's so marinated in the word that the word saturates you so much that it just seeps out of you. It just oozes out of you in conversation. And this can only happen by spending time with the Lord in his word and in prayer each morning during the week And, and I, would, I would add, by the way, if you've been discouraged and frustrated that by, by some habitual sin that you struggle with and you're just tired of feeling defeated by it and shame over it and guilt and the damage it causes in your life, don't be frustrated if you haven't spent the time in God's word and in prayer to address it. Because the Lord looks at it as, I've given you what you need, you can change. But you have to put the work in to change by spending time with Christ in his word and in prayer. And by the way, I would also add, 
it's so important to do this because it's difficult for sin to remain in the apartment of your heart if God's word has moved in and become its roommate. God's word will always win. The two are an odd couple. They can't live together. If you need help learning how to have personal devotions with the Lord, I wrote a blog about this a couple of years ago. It's still on our website. It's called How to Spend 30 Minutes with God. I'd encourage you to check it out, or I'd be more than willing to talk to you after the service. Next, Paul says, admonishing and teaching one another. It's a reminder of how the church body plays a role in helping us change. Sometimes we need a timely word from another believer of them oozing Scripture because they've marinated and saturated themselves in it. And, and we need them to give us a word of encouragement or exhortation to help us put off and put on the new self. This is why it's important to avoid being on the fringes of a church. It's why it's so critical to be in a small group, to be serving on a ministry team so that you're getting around other believers because they can't speak into your life if they don't know you. They don't know you. So Paul says, dwell in the word, but then next he says, let her be delighting in worship. Worship plays a key role in changing. I think Paul's primarily referring to corporate worship here, but it, it could also hint at individual worship. There will be times when your soul will need to hear worship music played throughout your house or in your car, or in your office, or maybe during your workout at the gym. I know there are times that I do that. Sometimes when I'm struggling and or discouraged or um, disappointed with the Lord, I, I have no desire or appetite for some of the things I like to listen to, like there are a few podcasts, sports podcasts I like to listen to just to keep up on sports, and there are just days where I have no appetite for that, and I just, I need to hear God's word sung, and I just play that all day. There, there are days I, when I'm running errands in my car, instead of making phone calls or playing Christian radio or something like that, I just need to hear God's word sung. And so I have playlists that I've built on my phone of certain songs that, you know, here's my faith builder playlist. I have songs about faith and I have a worship favorites playlist. It's got like 60 all-time favorite worship songs, you know, that I love. And I, I play those because I need to have the melodic hook of a song in my head that's also true and reminding me of things about God that I need to remember. There are other times, though, your soul will need to be surrounded by other believers who are singing with you. This is why I would encourage you, if, you're, if you've had a bad week, or you're dif discouraged and really depressed, the last thing you want to do is skip church. You need to come because there are times, and I, I'll have to admit, I admit, again, being transparent with you, there are times I don't want to come to church, believe it or not, oh, you because know, I've had a rough week, but your singing encourages me, and I can't help but start singing with you. So if you've had a bad week, I just would urge you to, to, to come anyway, 
Push yourself to get out of bed. Come and be around others that are worshiping with you, and it will minister to your soul as well. It's impossible, I think, to overestimate the power of God's word put to music. So, application. Well, I said we're gonna get more specific on how we change. Uh, I think an application that comes to mind is this. Target your sin with the word and worship. Target your sin with the word and worship. So, so how do I change? How do I get victory over habitual sins? Well, if you struggle with obscene talk, then look up, write down, memorize, and pray Bible verses about wholesome talk. Or if you struggle with anxiety, look up, write down, memorize, and pray Bible verses about God's goodness, God's peace, and God's sovereignty. Because in the process of doing that, you are putting off, and then you are putting on truth and retraining your mind to think biblically. Like a sniper who chooses the kind of ammunition he needs for his target, having different rounds that he can choose from, we need to choose the right verses that we need from God's word to shoot at sins we struggle with. And then load God's word into your head and heart and it will help you change. You can even find worship songs on certain topics you struggle with and play those as well when you're working or exercising or walking. Doing so helps you to internalize truth about the Lord, but it also allows you to sing your prayers back to the Lord. I love songs that are like prayers. Oh, they're just, there are times, there just are times that I've prayed so much about something, I don't know how else to pray. I need fresh words. And the scriptures help me with that, but also certain songs do, where I can sing the song back to the Lord, basically borrowing the lyrics of a modern psalm writer to pray. So target your Sin with the word and worship. Well, let me just say that every believer in Jesus Christ should be able to look back over the past year or two of their lives and list specific ways they are changing. And if you can't, it raises the question, have you put on new clothes yet? Or are you still wearing the old ones? Every believer in Jesus Christ should be able to answer the question, hey, what's God doing in your life? Oh, man, he's teaching me about this. He's teaching me about this. He's changing me. God's really speaking to me here about this. Because if you're walking with him, he's always working on you. And so he's given us a purpose for change, a process for change, and the power to change. I want to encourage you to keep changing, empowered by his spirit, enabled by his grace, because... There's a king coming back. And he's coming back soon. And he's going to want to check out your new clothes. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, help us by your grace and by your spirit.
to understand how what we believe determines what kind of clothes we wear. Whether we wear the old grave clothes or the new clothes that Christ has given us. Lord, I just want to pray for those that are here today that might be struggling with habitual sins that they have tried and tried and tried to stop doing over the years, but have just continued to feel defeated. Lord, please, would you help them to apply the things they learned today and provide a breakthrough? Would you help them, Lord, to get down to the root cause of the sin in their heart. Would you give them the insight that the Spirit can give of what's causing in their heart, what is causing them to do that sinful behavior? Thank you, Lord, that when we put off sin and we put on sanctified, virtuous behavior that's Christ-like, There's peace, there's blessings, there's healthier relationships, there's a decreasing amount of guilt and shame and and pain in our lives. So we thank you, Lord, that living for you is worth it. It pays off. And Father, please, would you... Help us to be a church that's filled with people who are changing. Who who are changing because we're walking closely with you, dwelling in the word and delighting in worship. Help us, Lord. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.